March is National Sleep Awareness Month. Adequate sleep is a cornerstone of better long-term health. As you know, I'm a big proponent of CBD to support restful sleep, a real breakthrough in herbal products. The CBD brand that I take personally and recommend to my patients is Plus CBD from CV Sciences. Their natural wellness line, CBD Calm and CBD Sleep, combines well-studied ingredients offering non-habit-forming options and natural sleep and relaxation support. CBD Calm helps ease tension, soothes irritability, and contributes to a greater sense of contentment through a blend of plus CBD's award-winning full-spectrum CBD plus L-theanine and 5-HTP. CBD Sleep aids occasional sleeplessness with CBD plus melatonin, as well as soothing magnolia bark extract and relaxing lemon balm so you can get the rest you need and wake up alert and focused. Both products are backed by science with clinically researched active ingredients. To learn more and to order, visit pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman and use coupon code Hoffman30 for 30% off. That's pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Our guest is Amy Berger. Amy Berger has a master's degree in nutrition. She is the co-author, along with Dr. Eric Westman, of End Your Carb Confusion, A Simple Guide to Customize Your Carb Intake for Optimal Health. And it's a very uh, practical book. And it answers a lot of the questions that people might have because the whole subject is very baffling for people. Another pitfall that we sometimes see with uh, low-carb diets is people pack on the protein. And can that be counterproductive sometimes because there is this process biochemically whereby protein gets, you know, it's the amazing alchemy of the body, gets uh, transformed into glucose, gluconeogenesis. So could that be an obstacle? You know, people eating too much protein, is there not enough fat or, you know, the ratios are off? Yeah, this is, um, it's such a huge area of controversy right now and debate in the keto world. Um, obviously, gluconeogenesis is a thing. It's a process that exists where amino acids can be converted into glucose. But in all the years I've been working with clients, um, not once have I ever told somebody they were eating too much protein. That's never mm-hmm. been the problem in my experience. If anything, because of the misinformation about aiming for certain macros and percentages, I find that people and women in particular are skimping on protein and they're eating so little protein and they're loading up on fat instead. And it's pre- precisely because they've been sort of scared away from the protein because their gluconeogenesis or the, you know, the very small effect the protein has on insulin. And I think in someone with very, very severe type 2 diabetes or brittle diabetes, I do think there might be a rationale for watching the protein intake. But in general, I, I think that far too many women are actually eating too little protein. There's a lot of talk about keto adaptation, you know, and it, it takes a while. You know, I, 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 Explain it, uh, you know, as if it's a faulty hybrid car, you know, that goes from uh, gasoline to uh, electricity and that doesn't make the transition very well. And that's a little bit what happens when you go from glucose as a substrate for energy to uh, fat as a subs- as a uh, fuel for the body. Um, how long does it usually take and uh, how do you become keto adapted? How do you facilitate that? It, it really depends on the individual. The worst of it, usually over within a couple of days, and that's, that's some headaches, maybe some fatigue, some nausea. Um, so-called keto flu some, some sometimes people, referred to. Right. 
Right. Some people have no problem at all. Some people sail right through. Most of that is, is done within a few days. But if someone is an athlete, something, the peak performance usually can come back for several weeks and sometimes months. So that to, to recoup your full physical performance and then surpass it typically takes a while. But just to kind of get over the first hump really usually doesn't take that long. Um, but it is, there is an adaptation, but people should not be afraid of that. It's, it's well worth, it's, it's kind of a minor inconvenience that it's a small price to pay for all the benefits you get on the other side. And most of it can be prevented or, or at least mitigated a little bit by just getting enough salt, sometimes magnesium. It's just a rapid electrolyte shift when all of a sudden your blood sugar and insulin mm-hmm. are so much lower than you're typically used to having them be. And you need to hydrate a lot in the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah. Hydration, but not just water. You really mm-hmm. have to be careful to replace the sodium because mm-hmm. that's the low sodium. So, you know, it's kind of just like with saturated fat and red meat. We've been cautioned against sodium for so mm-hmm. long, except not only is sodium an essential nutrient, when you're on a very, very low carb diet, your body tends to need more sodium. Mm-hmm. So you really have to um, just be careful to include a little pinch of salt with the water. Just salt your food generously. Uh, Amy, what do you say to clients uh, when uh, they undertake the diet, they feel great, they lose weight, then they go to their doctor and their doctor says, "Uh oh, your cholesterol went up on this diet. Uh, You know, you're going to get heart disease. So uh, yeah, it may you may seem better, but long term, it's going to be harmful to you. Right? Oh, the dreaded cholesterol. So this this has been a thorn in the side of of low carb, even since the time of Dr. Atkins, right? We all, we all remember mm-hmm. even, even the contrarian people would say, Oh, well, sure. The low carb helps you lose yeah. weight, but you'll just die of a heart attack. And exactly. you'll make you're a good, you're be a good looking <laughs> corpse. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, um, again, I'm not a doctor. This area is so controversial and with clients, I can just recommend that they find a new doctor. You know, right now mm-hmm. we're, fortunate to have so many websites that list keto-oriented or low-carb-oriented practitioners Mm -hmm. so they can find a new doctor or we can just present them with some of the science. You know, low-carb diets improve just about every single marker you can imagine. Blood glucose, A1C, insulin, um, triglycerides, HDL, inflammatory markers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all kinds of things. And then in some people, not all, mm-hmm. some people, yeah, it's not total all. cholesterol and LDL go up. Mm-hmm. and um, But HDL often goes not, up, too, associated with that. Right, right. And triglycerides sink like a stone. Yes. And that triglyceride to HDL ratio seems to be a much more accurate you know, indicator of cardiovascular status than the LDL. Yeah, I mean, you're familiar with the work of Dr. David Diamond, I presume, who's the whose moniker on Twitter is the LDL skeptic, and uh, about the amount of calcification in your arteries. Yeah, that that I think is is also the endpoint that we look at, and not just uh, you know cholesterol numbers. I mean, cholesterol is a surrogate yeah. marker for cardiovascular risk, but where the rubber meets the road is in the interior of your arteries, and that's where we actually want to look for risk. Um, right. And, and just to, to real quick, a, a yeah. study just came out. Um, I think it was in JAMA Cardiology. So mm-hmm. not, you know, like a pretty heavy hitting journal yeah. where they determined that the, in terms of being a risk factor or an indicator for early coronary heart disease in women, 
um, LDL and total cholesterol were far, far eclipsed Mm -hmm. by insulin resistance. I mean, it wasn't even close. Type 2 diabetes, Mm -hmm. I think it was a tenfold increased risk. Mm -hmm. And then there's this something, and I'm not sure if I have the term correct. It's a fancy uh, term. The homeoviscous theory of LDL, uh, where it's thought that LDL goes up, but LDL merely goes up in reaction to a higher fat diet as a means of dispensing with the fat and literally, you know, protecting the arteries and carrying it away from the body as opposed to depositing in the arterial walls. So um, it's an adaptation rather than a, a risk factor, according to, you know, one uh, popular theory. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I'm not, I, I've heard of that. I'm not super familiar with it, but um, it, it actually doesn't happen. It's, it's kind of a smaller percentage of people that do low carb in which the cholesterol goes up. And most mm-hmm. people, it actually does go down. Yeah, and I agree with you. It's it's idiosyncratic. It's you know it varies from person to person. Um, okay, so when do the cravings abate, or do they ever abate? And that's I think that's a big deterrent for some people because uh, there's some circuitry that uh, continues to undermine people's resolve to stay on the diet. Uh, they simply crave carbs. They crave sweets. And yes, it does abate. Uh, to some extent on this, this diet, but how do you forestall that craving? Yeah, it's, it's a very individual thing. For some people, cr- the sugar cravings and carb cravings really just go away within a few days. Uh, for some people, they don't. And I think, you know, like we were talking earlier, or perhaps it was in, in part one of the podcast with the products, you know, and the newfangled manufactured keto goods. I think the more of that you include, you just perpetuate that cycle. Mm-hmm. You know, don't don't exchange a sugar addiction for a monk fruit addiction and a mm-hmm. an erythritol addiction. Yeah. So for some people that really still have those cravings, I do think it's best to completely get rid of all of that stuff as best you can and see what happens. Because when you when you just keep triggering that sweet taste, you're going to keep wanting more and more of it. So. That tends to help. This it, it sounds paradoxical, but the stricter you are, sometimes the easier it is because you just won't have those cravings. No, I, and I agree. Um, and there's there's also even some of those uh, formulations uh, don't deliver a lot of calories to the body, but they have a sweet taste, and it it tends to kindle that uh, brain circuit that perpetuates a sweet craving. Uh, and you, you kind of want to wean yourself away from that as a source of gratification. I, I think so, yeah. And, and there are some supplements supposedly that can help with sugar cravings. I don't think they're very effective, mm-hmm. but they, you know, okay. that's a your mileage may vary kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, some people take chromium or, you know, uh, various, uh, you know, things like gymnema, uh, which is supposedly a sugar blocker, right. and, and that uh, does help uh, with insulin metabolism. But, uh, you know, there's no... I wish there was some surefire remedy that could completely obliterate people's uh, predilection for sugar. Um, Okay. So, um, you know, recently, I mean, your previous book uh, was on the subject of uh, Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. And as you're well aware, recently there was a paper uh, in Alzheimer's Research and Therapy uh, headline keto diet shows promise for Alzheimer's patients. So what's up with that? How, how does that work? 
well, so like we probably covered that first time around, um, uh, sorry, Alzheimer's disease is sometimes regularly called type 3 diabetes or diabetes of the brain. And it has to do with the fact that the major problem in Alzheimer's disease is that neurons have lost the ability to metabolize glucose properly. So they're basically starving. I mean, that's an oversimplification, but they're not getting enough fuel. But one of the most promising and most encouraging things in Alzheimer's research right now is that even though those cells are not breaking down glucose to fuel themselves appropriately, they will still take up and use ketones. So that's kind of the the basic rationale for using a ketogenic diet in somebody with Alzheimer's. Right. And the key, though, is to have a really supportive, uh, you know, family or caretaker environment, because uh, the average uh, cognitively impaired patient doesn't have the wherewithal uh, or the motivation uh, to be able to sustain a diet like that. And besides, people, these people are usually older. Uh, when you're older, you tend to gravitate towards sweets, maybe because your sensory world is contracting and you're looking for gratification and, you know, uh, on your taste buds rather than other areas of life. And so you need uh, a lot of external support to implement, to successfully implement a keto diet for someone who's suffering from cognitive decline, in my opinion. Has that been your experience? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think that's critical. I mean, it's it's hard enough for somebody who's young and just wants to do it for health or for some kind of metabolic problem, it can be difficult enough for that person to do this, let alone someone that has cognitive impairment or maybe also has like physical limitations where they're not able to cook for themselves. Um, they really do need another family member or a support system doing doing the diet with them or preparing the food. It's um, that that kind of needs to be a whole family affair there. Indeed. Tell us about your uh, current offerings at... Um to it nutrition. You've got the Stall Slayer Masterclass, right? Right. We have that course. And then um, let's see, we have another course called the Keto Made Simple Masterclass, which is uh, kind of suitable for people that are brand new to keto, or if you've been doing it for a while, but you're still really confused and overwhelmed, that can bring you back to the basics and help you get centered. But with my my website, I am I am in private practice. I do consultations. Um, I'm based in North Carolina, but I work with people all over the country and even even overseas just by Zoom and Skype. Okay, so especially in this uh, era of lockdown, uh, a lot of this can be done uh, online, you know, and it's sort of coaching uh, remotely. Um, I, I remember what I was going to ask you. You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, gadgets and accoutrements to the keto diet these days, including, uh, you know, the familiar urine keto sticks uh, that Atkins popularized. Uh, but now you have a whole range of devices. You have, you know, finger stick blood tests and breath tests and so on uh, to help, uh, you know, you focus and get feedback on, you know, how how keto ketogenic is my diet. Uh, are, you, are you in favor of these things? You, uh, what's your take? I generally discourage people from using those things. And it's, it's not that they can't be helpful, but I find that people become very, very worried about these numbers. And mm -hmm. I, I kind of joke, even though it's not really a joke, that you should not be allowed to buy 
a glucose meter or especially a ketone meter without yeah. first sitting through a five-hour biochemistry lecture so mm -hmm. that you can understand how to interpret the numbers you yes. see. I'm not opposed to testing. I'm yeah. opposed to testing when you have no idea what right. the numbers mean. It, it kind of so, fosters um, keto OCD, I, you know, for some people. Absolutely. I think I think the urine strips are great because they are the most economical. They're, you can get them at any drugstore. Um, and I, I like them just as a little morale boost. You know, am I or am I not in ketosis, in or out? It's mm -hmm. either pink or it's not. Um, you don't have to obsess over how dark it is and it's not, you know, you don't have to prick your finger. It's non-invasive. So I, I think there's a merit to using those, but even then, I mean, I think people should really just go by the results. How do you feel? How's it going? And then I do think where, where testing and measuring can be useful is if you're not getting the results you want. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's see. Are you even in ketosis? Mm -hmm. You know, and so it can be helpful, but I don't think they're really, really not required at all, especially when you're brand new. How about CGMs, continuous glucose monitors? It's kind of all the rage these days among, uh, you know, people who are optimizers and, uh, you know, people trying to enhance their human potential. And so people are, you know, who are non-diabetic are walking around to, you know, monitor their response to uh, every morsel of food they eat. Um Useful? Uh, over the top? Um, <laughs> I'm going to say over the top, but it, it, it can also be useful, but I feel the same way that I feel about mm -hmm. the ketone meters. There's people that are going to become very, very alarmed over perfectly normal human physiology. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had people write to me freaking out because their blood sugar, quote unquote, skyrocketed mm -hmm. to 110 during a fasted high intensity workout. Oh boy. And my response is, well, congratulations, your body's working exactly the way it's supposed to. Yeah. So I think it's it's fine to use these, but you really have to understand the numbers. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the funny thing is, and, and maybe you find this too, like you were saying, the optimizers and the biohackers, mm -hmm. yeah. I find that the people who are the most interested in these technologies are the ones who need it the least. They're already <laughs> right. healthy, they're yeah. lean, they're active. Yeah. The people who could benefit the most don't even know this stuff exists. And that prompts another question. Is this diet suitable for, uh, you know, athletes and, uh, you know, people who are concerned about uh, performance? So it is. Any Anybody can do a very low-carb diet, but not everyone needs to. And that's, that's actually something we address in End Your Carb Confusion. Mm -hmm. We have three different levels of carb intake, and okay. we're very clear that not everybody needs mm -hmm. super strict keto. I mean, keto can be very, very therapeutic mm -hmm. for, mm -hmm. you know, completely reversing certain conditions and of course for weight loss. But somebody who's healthy and lean and active can really yeah. not only tolerate and get away with more carbs, but really truly might feel better and, and perform better yeah. athletically with I, a little more. Now, I count myself I in that uh, echelon of people because I, you know, I don't have a lot of, I look in my family, I don't have a lot of insulin resistance and I'm, you know, normal weight and, you know, an ex I'm able to exercise enough, I think, to keep my uh, insulin blood sugar under control. And I, with, with a fair amount of carbs, I mean, I'm not, you know, carb heavy, but I do include them. And I've tried keto 
And uh, it's nice. You know, I lose a couple of pounds and I get leaner and more shredded, you know, if that's the goal. But it's not, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's not de rigueur for my optimal performance, in my opinion. Right. No, and I, I think that's perfectly legitimate. I mean, not everyone, you know, as <laughs> keto has become so popular, but I mean, look around the world. There's, there's billions of healthy people that eat beans and fruit and they mm-hmm. eat grains and, and they eat and, rice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So we can, we can never say that those things are, are toxic or poisonous. It's really all about the individual situation. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, nobody needs to be eating 300 grams of carbs a day, but, you know, 100, 150, a couple of potatoes here and there, that's fine. Well, to, to, to sum up, and I think you, you explain it nicely in the book, but there are some things that might lead people to conclude that a keto diet is worth a try. Number one would be, uh, excess weight around the midsection. Number two would be, a, you know, borderline or elevated hemoglobin A1C. Another thing that I use is, you know, I look at people's triglycerides. If people's fasting triglycerides are over 100, uh, I'm thinking maybe there's a problem or maybe there's some fatty liver going on or if they have hypertension, you know, uh, and they're overweight, you know, the suggestion is that, yeah, maybe just or a bad cholesterol to HDL ratio, you know, maybe just maybe low carb diet is suitable. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's worth a try because if it, if it doesn't work, then you just go back to your regular diet. You know, you really have nothing to lose except a couple of weeks or months of, of missing out on some of your favorite foods. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it is uh, a matter of personal exploration. Uh, I think it's really worth uh, exploring uh, for a lot of people. So uh, a great intro to that is via uh, Amy's book, End Your Carb Confusion, A Simple Guide to Customize Your Carb Intake for Optimal Health, available from the usual sources. Uh, Amy, you also have a, you have another a personal website besides Tuit Nutrition, www.tuitnutrition.com. Uh, that's, that's really the only one. Okay. That's the place to go. Okay. Great stuff. Anything to add? Uh, I think we, you know, had a pretty wide ranging discussion about matters related to low carb dieting and keto, uh, much more in the book and, um, all the best to you. And we'll, uh, you know, probably see each other at uh, the next zoom meeting. <laughs> yeah, the, right. Thank you. Thank you so much. And let's let's put in a plug for uh, our mutual credential, the uh, CNS credential. Uh, I just just uh, briefly summarize. What is that? Why did you attain that credential? What does it do for you? How does it credibilize your practice? Right. So CNS is Certified Nutrition Specialist, and um, it is provided by it. I, it used to be the American College of Nutrition. I think it still is, but it's the it goes by a different yeah, name it, now. I mean, it's now the big umbrella organization of the American Nutrition right, Association. Right, okay. Yeah, that's yeah, the you know, right. slight change. Right. So, right. Yeah. And so I, I think the main question people would have is how is it different from being a registered dietitian? And it's just, it's a different kind of education. You know, someone with, with a CNS credential, like my education, did not involve something that would let me work in a hospital, for example, doing parenteral nutrition or like renal diet kind of thing. Um, but I think it's more, I, I feel better having the credential. I mean, there's so many people that, that are brilliant with nutrition, but I think that having a formal credential gives me a little bit more legitimacy in my practice. And, and when I write books, 
Um, and, and it's, it's more about do, personalized nutrition. A- it sounds like that it, that it's uh, you know more uh, suitable to clinical practice for you know the average uh, outpatient, you know patients like we're talking about here when you know in endocarb confusion, uh, as opposed to you know patients in you know hepatic failure, renal failure, you know the more seriously. Uh, you know, debilitated patients in a hospital, although, you know, our, our range of expertise can extend to those patients. So that's the deal, I guess. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that definitely about the personalization. And, and also, you know, the ANA, we, we have a formal ketogenic training curriculum now. So I think they were one of the first organizations yes. to come on board and really recognize the legitimacy of the science there. Yeah, so if you're a health professional, uh, you can go to ANA.org and you can find out about uh, their keto course because, uh, you know, you may want to have a knowledge base that goes beyond uh, uh, the lay uh, understanding of, of how to implement a uh, low-carb or keto diet, and that's what that uh, keto course is all about. Uh, yeah, and Amy, if, if I could just say, say sure. one quick thing, because sure. the keto... You know, it has a, there's a lot of misconceptions and misperceptions about what keto really is. And it's, I know it can be very off-putting and very intimidating. So anyone that, that I, I encourage people to look into it really. And, and whether that's through end your carb confusion or through finding some legitimate websites, the, the research really is profound and impressive. And I, it's, it, this way of eating is also much, much simpler than most people make it out to be. And so if someone is thinking that you have to weigh, everything track and it's this complicated thing it's really not so if if you have any interest in this try to kind of curtail your the things you've heard and 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 approach it with a clean slate it's it's much simpler and more down to earth than many people have made it sound and that's what uh, your mission statement's all about is making uh what seems like uh, very complex concepts uh uh readily available and easily explainable to the general public and that you've done so admirably with your books. Thank you very much, Amy Berger, for joining us. All the best to you. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. You know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. That's why I partnered with Fullscript, an online dispensing platform that only offers curated professional-grade brands that I know and trust. The very same supplements that I prescribe to my patients and take myself. Never counterfeit or expired, always stored and shipped correctly. Just go to DearHoffmanStore.com to start your free Fullscript account. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA-compliant and offers world-class support. Fullscript also gives you access to my custom targeted supplement protocols that combine the products that I recommend to address specific needs, heart health, immune support, and much more. Just go to DearHoppinStore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll get access to the supplements and features you need to help you achieve your wellness goals. That's DearHoppinStore.com. DearHoppinStore.com.